Okay, everyone. Well, uh, good to be here at the Freelance Branch. Um, <laughs> I was chair of it for three years, so uh, I'm very happy to be back and to um, see that the branch is still active and thriving. Um, I'm hoping that we will have time to ask questions because some of what I'm talking about is going to be a bit technical legally and uh, people may have questions as to how um, the law operates in relation to covering in-camera proceedings because it is a bit of a minefield and the fact that there are two different regimes which I'll try and explain to you uh, makes it confusing. The first thing uh, to realise is that the normal rules around reporting are turned on their head. Every young journalist is told that they have to say uh, in a news report, tell the reader who, what, when, where and how. There's an, you can't do that. There's an absolute prohibition on identifying any party to the proceedings. So that means that who cannot be published under any circumstances and frequently what, when and where could also lead to identification and should be therefore excluded. So your report is really about the how the uh, proceedings were conducted, what happened, what the outcomes were. There are two kinds of family law, what's called private family law and public family law. Private family law is disputes between private individuals. Typically, I mean, typically a couple have a relationship, it breaks up, they try and sort out the problems to do with their home, their resources, their children, and so on. And then there is public family law, when the state intervenes in a family to protect children, and uh, ultimately perhaps to take those children into care. So um, for <coughs> many decades, both of these kinds of family law were held in private, to the extent that a high court judge once ruled that even a uh, disappointed or a, um, a litigant with a complaint, even a legitimate complaint against their lawyer, could not go to those professional tribunal hearings with the information from the family law case. That was the extent to which all information was blocked. And uh, that ran counter, obviously, to the general principle that justice should be administered in public. And I mean, this is actually very, very important, the administration of justice in public. Uh, court reporting has often been the bedrock of a lot of journalism, because how are citizens to know that legislation is working if they can't see how courts are actually administering the legislation that our politicians enact? And if it is not working, how can citizens and politicians seek to change it if, if they can't see that? And as has been said, in again, by the judiciary themselves, by uh, former Chief Justice Susan Denham, the media are the eyes and ears of the public in relation to seeing how the law works out in the courts. So there was a big push for reform of the in-camera rule, and in 2004, the then Minister for Justice, Michael McDowell, introduced a measure that permitted researchers nominated by named organisations, including the Court Service, the ESRI, the Law Reform Commission, and all the third-level institutions, to attend private family law proceedings and report on them, subject to approval by the Minister, and to preserving the anonymity of all the parties and abiding by any directions that the court might give. 
He said at the time it was not intended that the media would be admitted under this legislation. In 2006, the court service set up a pilot project on family law reporting under this legislation, and they asked me to run it. Um, I took leave of absence from the Irish Times, ran the court service pilot project on reporting, which produced a magazine at regular intervals with court reports, the kind of court reports that you could read in a newspaper, but of course, without identifying any of the parties. That ran for about uh, two years because it continued after I went back to the Irish Times. Um, and the, uh, then we had the financial crash and also uh, the then chief executive of the court service felt that he had fulfilled his obligations under uh, the court service act to provide information to the public and demonstrated that family law could be reported. Now this act, it's not prescriptive as to what can and cannot be reported. Once people are admitted, only the courts can say you, you can or you cannot publish this or that piece of information. Um, and it, it is really quite a flexible piece of information, uh, of, of legislation, and that's the legislation which was subsequently then uh, replicated in the Child Care Amendment Act to allow people report on childcare proceedings. And the project I now run, the Child Care Law Reporting Project, is under this type of legislation um, which allows us access to all childcare proceedings and uh, only to look to the court to see if they are going to, uh, to, to restrict us, which they very, very rarely do, can I say. It's only if they feel there's some specific detail that might identify the family or if there's an exceptionally vulnerable uh, family that um, might be upset by any reporting that, the, the, that the, the judge will ask that we not report it. Now, the media were still excluded, except for re-reporting what was published in this way. And Alan Shatter introduced the Courts and Civil Law Miscellaneous Provisions Act 2013. Sections 5 to 9 are the ones you need to have a look at. It's very, but I'm going to talk you through it anyway, because it is quite technical. Um, it amends that 2004 legislation by permitting bona fide members of the press attend family and child law proceedings while preserving the anonymity of the parties, etc., which is fair enough. It also says that the anonymity of witnesses has to be protected. So that means in childcare proceedings, social workers or medical experts are entitled to anonymity. And in public, in, in private family proceedings, accountants, teachers, members of the Garda Siakon or other witnesses, they all have to be anonymous under the 2013 Act. So although bona fide members of the press can attend, you have to preserve the anonymity of everybody there. And the court is given very wide discretion to exclude the press or order certain parts of the evidence are not reported. The reasons for this are to preserve the anonymity of the parties, which I think is fair enough, but also by reason of the nature of the circumstances or otherwise in the interests of justice. Now, these are very broad provisions. Like, what do they mean? And some guidance is given by a very extensive list of considerations that might apply. These include the best interests of the child, the views of any party or any child involved in the proceedings, whether information is sensitive personal information, which includes sensitive medical or psychological information, 
tax information, information relating to the sexual conduct or sexual orientation of the person concerned. The press can also be excluded or restricted if their presence might cause undue distress to a party or child involved in the proceedings, although this is qualified by the requirement that this distress would arise because of the emotional or medical condition of the person, any physical impairment or intellectual disability they might suffer from. Now, in my opinion, this means it's not justifiable for the court to exclude the press just because a party requests it. The party concerned be, you know, uh, will have to produce evidence of special emotional vulnerability or physical or intellectual disability uh, if they are to justify asking that the press uh, be excluded. Now, all, all of this is balanced by another provision in the same bit of legislation that the court has regard to the desirability of promoting public confidence in the administration of justice. And that, of course, requires transparency. That's why the law was introduced in the first place. So the court would have to balance the desirability of promoting confidence in the administration of justice with any objections that might be raised. So I don't think the courts could allow a situation to develop where the purpose of the legislation was undermined by individuals just objecting to the presence of journalists, especially as they are not going to be identified. <coughs> then there's a further basis for excluding the press, which is the need to protect a party or child against coercion, intimidation or harassment. This could arise if reports were published concerning, for example, allegations of domestic violence or chi uh, child abuse in circumstances where the alleged perpetrator or his or her associates were particularly violent or volatile, and if the party concerned was a vulnerable adult or child. So I do see the reason for that being in there. Um, also, reporting can be restricted if it might prejudice criminal proceedings. I can see how there might be a reason uh, for that being in there, because the Gardaí might be investigating allegations of child abuse with a view to prosecuting. Um, at the same time, we have, the Child Care Law Reporting Project, we have published um, a number of reports of cases of child abuse where the Gardaí are considering prosecuting. In fact, they only procuse in, uh, prosecute in a very small minority of cases. So uh, I think that's challengeable. Then there's a big chunk in there about sensitive commercial information being restricted from being published, which could give rise to loss or gain to the person to whom it relates. That obviously relates to the kind of private family law disputes where there's a lot of <coughs> property involved. Again, if the anonymity of the parties is protected, I don't really see why that could be used as an excuse for excluding the press. Now, this, in my view, is the worst bit of, the, of this legislation because it contains a provision that reporting can be prohibited or restricted if the sensitive personal information, information that if published might cause distress or the commercial, commercially sensitive information, when taken together with other information, leads to members of the public identifying the party or the child involved in the proceedings. I think this reference to taken together with other information is deeply problematic because how can you control, all of you reporters, how on earth are you to control what other information is out there? Or do we even know what other information is out there? 
which taken together with your report might lead to the <coughs> identification. And that does, I mean, it appears that uh, reporters somehow are expected under this legislation to be responsible for what else might be in the ether, even if they themselves are not aware of it. And in fact, when this legislation was initially published, I wrote in the Irish Times that I thought it was completely unworkable, at least for those uh, uh, working from outside Dublin. Because what might that information be? I mean, most obviously, geographical location. I mean, if you can think of a contested judicial separation, a uh, couple, a family home in Dublin, in, in the heady days of the Celtic Tiger, perhaps an investment property, uh, two teenage children in boarding school, and bog-standard disputes about disposal of the property, how the children would divide up their holidays. If this was published in the Irish Times or the Irish Independent out of one of the Dublin Circuit Courts, very unlikely they'd be identified. You know, we were coming down with people with this kind of lifestyle in 2008 and 2009. How likely would it be that anonymity would be preserved if it was published in the Clare Champion? Or indeed, if it was written by my colleague and friend Lorna Siggins in Galway, uh, from Galway Circuit Court. But there is no doubt that Lorna and reporters in the Clare Champion would be every bit as scrupulous about attempting to exclude identifying information as would people writing from the Dublin courts. Other examples of other information might be a report of criminal proceedings relating to a criminal act committed by one of the parties, because criminal proceedings are not subject to reporting restrictions. Similar issues arise in childcare cases. You know, again, bog standard type case, a care, a care order in Dublin for a child, mother suffered from mental, mental illness, perhaps had a problem with alcohol as well, child in the voluntary care of a family member for some time. The CFA then wants to make the order more permanent. That's unlikely to pinpoint a particular family in the greater Dublin area. But the same could not be said if the case was heard in Castle Bar and reported in the Western people. Because those set of circumstances would make the family quite identifiable. Uh, in our project, we can avoid it because we have the luxury of, we, first of all, we publish, it was every three months, it may be even a little less frequently now, but we never identify where we're writing from. So therefore, you know, we use terms like a rural town or a major city or whatever, and it's not time specific. So that hugely sort of increases the pool from which the reports could be drawn. But that luxury is not available to the Clare Champion or the Western people. However, I think there are ways that it could be got around. Uh, perhaps, and this is something maybe the freelance branch and the uh, provincial papers could think about, uh, to have pooled reports where reports from various parts of the country were pooled and then published in the different regional papers without specifying where they came from. You know, so so there, there would be ways, uh, imaginative ways around that. But the penalties for publishing a report that led to the identification of a child or a party are very severe. Section 9 of the Act provides that conviction in the district court would result in a Class A fine, that's €5,000 at the moment, and or 12 months in jail. If convicted in the circuit court, this rises to a fine of 50000 and three years in jail. 
This applies both to the individual reporter and to any manager or other office of a body corporate who sanctions the publication of a report. I don't think this aspect of the law is fully understood by all editors and managers in the media. A couple of years ago, uh, in the uh, trial law project, we published in one of our regular volumes of reports, and these then can, of course, be re-reported and republished by the media, uh, one which included a care order being granted in a case where the father of a young child offered online to abuse his child and to film the abuse. A synopsis of this case and other cases had been circulated to all the media in a press release. The reporter covering the reports in one national daily rang me to ask where this had happened. I told him I couldn't say, because that could lead to the identification of the family. Obviously this wasn't good enough for the news editor, because after he passed that on, the reporter rang back to press very insistently to identify the part of the country in which this case had been heard, obviously with a view to the old name and shame of the perpetrator, and inevitably there for the child. It was only when I told him to tell his news editor he was looking at 50,000 euro of a fine, yeah, fine and three years in the slammer that, <laughs> that the pestering stopped. Um, and there are some, you know, there, there are some people in the news media that would like to be able to do this, uh, justifying it on the basis, you know, of that these people don't deserve any quarter, but without being aware of the fact, you know, that it is vulnerable children that are being protected by the legislation protecting the anonymity uh, of the families. But for those editors who are aware of the legislation, its provisions are likely to have a chilling effect on reporting in camera proceedings. It can be done, and I think it is very, very important family law is reported, because the family law courts are the places where the impact of legislation enacted by our legislators can have the most impact on the daily lives of many law-abiding citizens, and where relationships between adults break down, or where parents face very difficult challenges in their lives, and the courts step in to decide where the children can live, with whom, what is to happen to the family home, how the family's resources are allocated. So it's of enormous public interest that these decisions are made in a transparent manner so the public understand how and why they're made and informed public discussion can take place on how the law operates. There are all kinds of aspects of the family law system crying out for reporting, not, not least the impact of overcrowding on our courts. And these don't require identifying anybody. Well, you can identify the courts. In many cor courts throughout the country, uh, for example, family law proceedings are heard on the same day as criminal, civil and other cases. There is no privacy for the parties. People stand around for hours waiting for their cases to be called. Only last week, one of my colleagues was in the district <coughs> court in Athai. There were almost 150 cases on the list. Over 20 were family law cases. Nine of them were childcare cases. Everybody milling around in a public area waiting for their case to be called. They're called by initials, but even so. Recently, an advocate who represents, uh, accompanies particularly vulnerable people to court, people with perhaps cognitive disabilities, in childcare cases, told me she was told by the judge, rightly, about the importance of the in-camera rule, not discussing what occurred in court outside it. And then she went out with her client to explain what was happening to her, having to do so in a hall with dozens of people milling around. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it is of public interest that we know 
about the physical conditions of the court, the conditions in which people uh, have to conduct their business. In the Circle Court in Dublin, which hears divorce, judicial separations, and related matters, and that is in a special building. But there's regularly 30 or 40 cases on the list, two or three courts sitting in the building, well over 50 people sitting in the waiting area, therefore waiting for their cases to be called. Reporting on family law proceedings does not involve reinventing the wheel. Journalists who regularly attend court and report on rape and sex abuse cases have had no difficulty in ensuring that no details likely to identify the complainants are published. And they've been doing that for decades. And have always been very responsible around that. On the rare occasions where identification has inadvertently happened, it has usually arisen from decisions made by the criminal justice system rather than the journalists. Or there have, of course, been cases where people have been identified because they sought to be identified in order to identify the perpetrator. But there was a lot of upset among those working with uh, the children in what came to be known as the Roscommon incest case because that family got identified when the details of the case were published. But the DPP decided to prosecute the mother in Roscommon Circuit Court, the circuit court of one of the smallest counties of Ireland. In these circumstances, and given the serious nature of the case, it was impossible that the, uh, not to have the family identified. If the case was moved to Dublin or even to Galway, that could have been avoided. And in fact, the father in the case was later prosecuted in Dublin and journalists succeeded in ensuring no link was made with the previous case. So, you know, it really is possible with people just putting a little bit of thought into it. Um, it won't be plain sailing, and as I outlined uh, earlier, people have the right to object. There is a problem <coughs> if people do object because reporters don't have the right to address the court. Only parties can address the court or those who seek uh, to make an application, even though sometimes individual judges might ask the journalist for their views, but you know, you're not on a par in terms of your training or anything else with the lawyers, uh, it may not always be easy. And that would involve asking the organization, I think, to get legal representation and make an application to attend and counter any arguments made by a person objecting. To date, this has not happened, probably because there's been so little media attendance at family court proceedings. But I do think that media organizations and the NUJ should be prepared um, to counter an objection. And you know, once that's done, once it is established that people cannot just uh, willy-nilly object to uh, media attending their cases, that should settle the matter. But I certainly think it's something that, that, that should be prepared for. Um, so, you know, what can you do? What can be done? I mean, one of the lessons, by the way, from the court service pilot uh, project is the sheer mundanity of most private family law proceedings. <laughs> Uh, they're not mundane, obviously, to the people who were involved, but um, because and, uh, the same issues come up again and again. So it is no media organisation is going to invest an enormous amount of time and resources having people sitting week in, week out in those proceedings. The public might be surprised by the fact that the conduct of the parties, which might have led to the breakdown of the marriage, was rarely a, merely a, a major issue in judicial separation or divorce proceedings. Family law 
legislation specifies that the conduct of the parties can only be a factor in deciding the outcome of the case where it would be unjust not to consider it. So therefore, the, and the vast majority of judges really do not have the slightest wish to hear recriminations between a couple about their behaviour towards each other and will cut them short if they t attempt to introduce it. There are a minority of cases in which the judicial separation uh, is sought on the grounds of adultery, but that's very much discouraged by the courts. Um, so money and the family home uh, is the main issue uh, in a lot of cases and in where there are also dependent children, and there's only dependent children in about 40% of the cases, uh, are, is the other big issue. So often the legal proceedings involve poring over bank statements as each side challenges the other's statement of means or argues over whether the children should spend Saturday morning in extracurricular activities with a non-custodial parent. I mean, I remember I was uh, at a judicial separation hearing in Galway headed by Judge Gork for the court service project. The couple had no children and they were arguing over the carve-up of the family home, a holiday home and a few investment properties in wh to which the wife's family had contributed. Each bank statement was minutely dissected. The case when it, it went on for a day and when it adjourned for lunch and the lawyers and the parties had filed out, Judge Brock turned to me and said, Welcome to Galway, Dr Coulter. I hope you're having as much fun as I am. <laughs> um, so that's what... You can, you can expect, and as I said, I don't see that it is something that uh, would be of enormous interest to most <coughs> news editors. Proceedings in the district court are concerned with domestic violence, maintenance, guardianship of children, custody and access to children. Uh, and access <coughs> to children. Now, I mean, every case of domestic violence is obviously very distressing for the victims and for those concerned, but they do get to resemble each other a bit after a while, unfortunately, from a news point of view. So the repetitious nature of these proceedings, I think, does mean they'll attack little media interest because especially, you know, you can't identify high-profile individuals because, that, because of grammar identification. That's one thing that some media, for example, in England, people go into the high court uh, with a huge, huge amounts of money and so on. High court family law proceedings were always published identifying people in England. The lower down ones weren't. Uh, that does not happen here. Um, but... Nonetheless, despite this kind of mundanity about a lot of it, it's very important the public understands what happens and the media are the only vehicles for conveying this information. I think it would be very useful for media organisations or for freelancers or groups of freelancers to spend a few weeks at regular intervals in both the local circuit and district courts describing the physical conditions, the organisation of the lists, as well as individual cases, so that the public can get a sense of what goes on. Many years ago, before most people here can remember, um, Nell McCafferty ran a series in the Irish Times called In the Eyes of the Law. They just did that. And it was mainly, in the, a lot of it was in the children's court, it was in the district court, describing the exchanges between the judges and sometimes the witnesses and so on. Oh, hui. Uh, hmm? oh, hui. oh hui. yes. <laughs> and um, it gave a great sort of sense of the meat of what happens. You know, it was very, very lively. It had a massive, massive readership. I do think that there's scope for doing that again, and it can be done without identifying people. Um, 
So far, I, I mean, I think, as I said, it's an opportunity for a number of freelance journalists in different parts of the country perhaps to get together and offer such a service and offer it on a kind of syndicated basis uh, to, to various publications. Um, so far, there's been more media interest in public family law proceedings involving child protection and welfare because that's a very emotive uh, subject. Some of these cases, though, can continue over many months involving multiple adjournments. Complex issues can be involved with a lot of technical and medical information or where there might be an investigation into abuse allegations. It's very unlikely any media organisation will have the resources to cover such cases comprehensively right through to their end. What I think is more likely and is also extremely valuable is snapshots of what occurs in the childcare courts so that that principle of the administration of justice is upheld and uh, the, in relation to um, a very important issue, which is state intervening in families on, and actually depriving families of some of their fundamental constitutional rights. But this is also where our project comes in, because as well as reporting on routine cases, which we do, we follow lengthy cases through to their end, often years after have, they have begun, reporting each portion of the case as it is adjourned and is sometimes adjourned many times. All of our reports are published on the website, either as current publications or in the archive, which is now searchable. And we rely on the media to bring these reports to the wider public. The, public, the pub, uh, publication of each volume is accompanied by a press release which contains synopses of the most significant cases. But that's only five or six. Uh, in each press release and usually we publish about 30 cases per volume for obvious reasons we can't you know we publish all of them in a press release so there is on the website a cache of reports which have not yet reached the media and for enterprising journalists prepared to look for them they're in there there are stories in there uh, actually in the archive um, I'm I know I've uh, I've reached my half hour I think easily but I just want to say one or two things to finish up. One of the things we've learned is that these proceedings are much more sensitive and delicate than private family law because unlike most private family law proceedings the behaviour of the parties who are the parents of the children is under scrutiny. The basis for the taking of proceedings by the state in the form of the Child and Family Agency is that according to the constitution the parents have failed in their duty towards their children. And the Child Care Act says the health, development or welfare of the child has to be avoidably impaired if they are, uh, in order to take them away from their parents. So this inevitably involves allegations of neglect, physical, emotional or sexual abuse being made against the parents. So there's a huge stigma attached to the taking of children into care. Despite the fact the courts are not actually conducting a trial of the parents, this is meant to be an inquiry into what's in the best interests of the child or the children, it is perceived by the parents that they are on trial for their functioning as parents, and in a sense they are. And the sanction is very severe, the taking away of a child from their parents, perhaps for the whole of their childhood. I mean, it's up there with taking away a person's liberty for that period of time. It's, it's a hu hugely uh, serious matter. And the type of evidence 
includes descriptions of the physical condition and hygiene of the home and the children, whether they suffer from developmental delay, whether the parents suffer from drug or alcohol addiction, mental illness, and so on and so forth, uh, and sometimes even allegations of phys physical and sexual abuse. From the point of view of the children, the issues involve the most intimate details of their and their family lives, things they wouldn't even share with their closest friends. It would be very traumatic for such information to come into the public domain and be the subject of gossip or teasing in their schools or their communities, perhaps even put on websites for general titillation. And this is all the more so for children who are already damaged or vulnerable. And for all of these reasons, the Child and Family Agency and the judiciary uh, are very vigilant about the reporting of childcare proceedings. So uh, when we set up the project, um, I uh, talked to members of the judiciary and others, uh, and we drew up a protocol to ensure, or seek to ensure, that children were not identified. Copies of that are available. I don't know if I have enough for everybody. Um, on the kind of things that you, you, you shouldn't mention. Um, and to date, nobody who has been the subject of a report, we have about 450 reports on the website, has uh, been identified uh, to the public. Sometimes they recognise themselves, but I mean that's inevitable because they have the information anyway already. The purpose is to ensure that nobody who doesn't have the information can get it about a, about a family. Uh, and I would say that you know, while it is the job of journalists to inform the public, it is also, I think, sometimes the job of journalists to be responsible about the information they give and not to cause harm in doing it. And that is why I am supportive of the some degree of in camera of you know of the in camera rule as uh, provided it does permit reporting. I am very critical of the 2013 Act. I think it could be amended. I think it gives makes it very difficult for journalists to do their work. Not impossible. And with, with care, with collaboration among colleagues, uh, with a commitment from media organisations to ensure a light is shone on uh, this very important um, activity of our legislators in, in passing this kind of law, I think it can be done. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Karen. Thank you. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Um, Karen, uh, in the district courts, um, sometimes a person, usually a father, will be up for um, being in breach of a protection or safety order. And but there's no restrictions. This is an open public court. And I know it's kind of to do with family law. Um, so, I mean, sometimes it depends on, what, on the case. But you, know, you, should, you see, some things kind of tip into the criminal law. I know. Once. Uh, a barring order, or a protection order, or a domestic violence order, is, um, that is a family law order. If someone breaches it, they commit a crime. I know, but by publishing the, the name and the address... Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think that's actually an anomaly in the latest issue one, yeah. Uh, and I'm not quite sure how that can be resolved, but, uh, because it, uh, it, it's... I mean, criminal law has always been open to, to be... Um, it's a, it's a little bit, when you think about it, if the, uh, if the, the husband or the, the, the partner in the case were to then assault the woman, yes. 
that would be a criminal offence, yeah. and they would then be prosecuted in the criminal court. So it's it is a it's not exactly a grey area, but it's a transitional <coughs> thing between private family law and crime. And I think that's you know that's yes. a reason. Expanding on that question, in circumstances whereby there has been a breach of order, at what point can the journalist report? Sorry, a breach of protection or? In relation to, say, an order, uh, say, assets were frozen and uh, somebody oh, continued yes. to, to spend, but it was it was not known, like it hadn't. Another one is, a, is it maybe an easier example is in circumstances whereby perhaps somebody was ordered to pay the healthcare costs, like BHI costs. And um, sometimes these things are decided by way of the final file, but in the meantime, there could be a detrimental issue to the health of the person on the receiving end of the order. So if the order has been breached, at what point can it be reported? I think um, th that the, the, the name of the individual probably can't while it remains in the family law courts. If it goes back to the circuit family law court, which it might well, um, unless... But if it if it got became then a civil action between the two parties in a different court, it could be reported. Mm. But while it is still that it is that, you know within the confines of the family law court system, uh, it is and, and the court is seeking to have the the order met. I mean the, the man could go to jail for contempt, for instance, if mm. he didn't. Uh, and the fact, but the fact that he was sent to jail for contempt and that is open to the court mm. to do that. You couldn't identify. You'd yeah. have to say, and you know, a man went to jail for contempt because yeah, but it can be reported. Which you, which you wouldn't be able to name him. If, on the other <coughs> hand, the wife say decided to sue him in for uh, what could she sue him for? Yeah. I'm not sure it would make its way into the civil courts. You know, I, if it was an enormous <coughs> amount of transfer of money which got into the commercial courts, for instance. Yeah. Uh, and you were talking about. There. So it's all about that context. As soon as it goes out of the family law court, then yeah, but what, while it remains within the family law court, you can't say anything that might identify. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, last Can question. Ask, um, the website, please, for your Sorry? project. The website address, please, for your project. Child law project. Mm -hmm. www. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Excellent summation.